please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're thankful for all of you that have come here today to celebrate this Easter Sunday morning with us. And it's a pleasure to be able to talk to you about the subject that is really the cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith, to speak to you the magnitude of the doctrine of the resurrection. There are many doctrines in Christianity that you might not even know about. You may spend your whole life exploring the different doctrines that are found in the Bible. There are men and women in seminaries across our country and across the world that have spent a great deal of time trying to study the doctrines that you find in the Bible and fit all of those things together and try to make sense of the whole compendium of the faith. But if you're a new Christian that's just come to the faith, or if you are the most learned seminary professor, there's one doctrine that stands out above all the rest, one that's more important than all of the rest, and that is the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As I said, there are some doctrines that you might not even know about. There are some doctrines that we can disagree on, but you can't do without the resurrection. We must have the resurrection of Christ. It's the most important doctrine to our faith. The resurrection undergirds the Christian faith, and it might surprise you to hear me say this, but our, our faith is not built primarily upon the teachings of Christ. Uh, We studied for over a year in the Sermon on the Mount, and there we talked about Jesus' exposition of the Mosaic Law. And yet some of those same laws were found in the Code of Hammurabi 200 years before Moses. Our faith is not built chiefly upon Jesus' life. And his life was very important. It was a perfect life, and it was absolutely essential to us that we receive the righteousness imputed to us because of Christ's life, his perfect life. Our faith is not built primarily upon the miracles of Jesus. And I've mentioned that in uh, our study of Matthew, that unless you want to talk about the miracle of the new birth, there are no miracles that are going to make you a Christian. Our faith is not chiefly built upon the death of Christ. And you might want to hear me out on that one because I would never be as foolish as to diminish the death of Jesus Christ for our sins. But I want you to clearly understand this, that Jesus' teachings, Jesus' life, Jesus' miracles, Jesus' death, all of that is meaningless unless it climaxes in Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead. I've chosen this morning for our text, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, because this is the Bible's most extensive explanation of the doctrine of the resurrection. We could have stayed in Matthew, that's our regular study on Sunday mornings, and we would have skipped over a lot of chapters and come to the end, and we could talk about the resurrection from Matthew. We could look at it from the other gospel accounts, as we read John chapter 20 this morning, because all of the gospel accounts speak of the resurrection of Christ. But I've chosen to come here to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 because there is no place in all of the Bible where the scope of the resurrection is dealt with like it is here in this chapter. So today we're going to look at this entire chapter. I'm not going to read it all because it's very, very long, but we're going to take portions of it, and I want to show you the magnitude of the importance of the resurrection for the Christian faith. So you might want to keep your Bible open, keep it there on your lap, because we're not going to read all the Scriptures, but I'll refer to them, and you'll be able to look at those in your Bible. 
So I'd like for us to begin reading from the first verse down through verse number four. And uh, as always, I'd like you to stand for the, in reverence for the reading of God's word. And we're going to use these first four verses as a springboard to get us into the discussion of the resurrection of Christ. Paul writes here in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse number one, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures." Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for those who have come to hear your word today. Speak to us through the message, and Lord, help us to understand much more clearly today the resurrection and how important that is for every Christian here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As 1 Corinthians is a the Bible's most extensive look at the resurrection of Christ, we can say that the first four verses of 1 Corinthians 15 is the Bible's most straightforward statement of the gospel itself. In verse number one, Paul said, I declare unto you the gospel. And then in verse number two, by by which also you are saved. And then in verses three and four, we find the declaration of Christ's death, of his burial, and most importantly here, his resurrection. The resurrection is the validation of the teachings of Christ. It's the validation of the value of his life, the validation of the value of his death, and ultimately, the resurrection is the validation for the entire faith of Christianity. The reason that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 15 was because there were many people who stated and believed that there was no resurrection of the dead. And if the resurrection is not true, then the consequences of that are staggering. The resurrection is what uniquely separates Christianity from all the different religions of the world. All of the religions in the world have founders that are dead. You can go to a place, you can find a place where they are buried. Some of them, I don't know, maybe their bones are still in those graves. No one has ever claimed a resurrection for any leader of any other religion, major religion of the world. Christianity stands alone in that because the founder of Christianity is not in a grave somewhere. You're not going to go anywhere and find the bones of Jesus Christ. Now here in the 15th chapter, we find Paul's very careful consideration of the importance of that fact, what the resurrection actually means to us. Now, before we get into the heart of the sermon today, I do want to make a a statement that the purpose of Easter Sunday morning or Resurrection Sunday, whichever way that you want to put that, the importance of it is not based upon the Easter bunnies and not not on, on Easter eggs. It's not an object lesson about flowers blooming in the spring. It's not turning over a new leaf. It's not putting your past behind you. It's not accomplishing new things. It's not talking about a better life that you hope to have. This is not about you. This is about Jesus Christ and about what he did And if you want to make it about you, it's only about you as it concerns how important that the resurrection of Christ is for every person who believes in him. Now, it's of such weighty importance that Paul uses the entire chapter to explore the scope of its importance. 
And I can't do justice to it in one sermon. I would prefer that we would do this just like we do every Sunday morning, that we would open this 15th chapter and we would begin to plod slowly along and then week after week after week we would take each section of it, we would explore the implications of it. But I can't do that. That would take 20 Easter's or more. I don't know how many it would take. I don't have you for that long. Some of you are waiting to get to those Easter bunnies this afternoon. And so we're going to have to hurry on and, and talk about the doctrine of the resurrection as, a, as the broadest sense, the scope that's found in this chapter. Now, in the first part, which, which takes us down through verse number 11, here we find the verification of the resurrection. The resurrection is verified. It's not the imagination of the apostles and a few people that came to a tomb of some guy who was supposed to be dead, and they looked into the tomb and they saw, well, there is no body there. This is not a story that somebody invented in order they could start uh, to start a new religion and somehow gain a worldwide following. Christianity is unlike other religions that just started with somebody's story. The people that believed this and said that Christ arose from the grave, these people in the first century were severely persecuted for believing this. And persecution has followed Christianity for its entire 2,000-year existence. None of, these, none of these people would have stuck with this story if it wasn't something that was verifiable. They wouldn't have given their lives for it if they didn't know that this is something that transforms every person that comes in contact with it, that's been spoken to by God himself. How is the resurrection verified? Well, according to the Apostle Paul, it begins with the testimony of the word. Paul says in verses 3 and 4 that the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ are according to the Scriptures. And people say, well, of course it is. You've got the New Testament here, and Paul wrote much of the New Testament. And his contemporaries like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they also wrote much of the New Testament. And so the facts that they talk about here or what they say are facts are things that have been invented by them And they agree with these things. They wrote the New Testament. But I would have to remind you that Paul is not referring to New Testament Scripture. The New Testament canon was not complete when Paul said this. Paul could not pick up his copy of the New Testament and turn to John 3.16 and there find how God gave his Son for the world and how that believing in him we could have everlasting life. He couldn't turn to those kinds of chapters and preach Jesus from those... What Paul had to do was to use the Old Testament Scriptures. When Peter preached that great sermon on Pentecost, the one that dealt with Christ's death and his resurrection, he went to Old Testament Scripture. When Stephen preached to the Jewish Sanhedrin and he was stoned for his preaching, he was preaching Jesus Christ from Old Testament Scripture. So the Old Testament is filled with these prophecies concerning Christ's death. And even Jesus himself, when he personally taught the scribes and Pharisees and his own disciples about his death and his resurrection, the place that he went was to the Old Testament. And so we find that in the Old Testament Scripture. Peter, for instance, used this as he was preaching Psalm chapter 16, which says, For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. And that means in the grave. Thou wilt not leave my soul in the grave. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. 
Now, we're taking sort of a jet tour through this chapter, so we can't go back to all the Old Testament prophecies and bring those in. But these are in the Old Testament. The prophets bore witness to this, that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, would die and that he would also arise from the dead. But then the resurrection is verified in another way because there are some people who don't believe the Bible. Some people would say, well, I don't believe Scripture. The Bible is not God's Word. Whether there's a prophecy concerning it or whether the Old Testament says it, that doesn't matter to me at all. But there's more proof. It's also verified by the testimony of witnesses. There are witnesses to the resurrection. And verse number 5 of this 15th chapter is the witness of Peter. We read about that a moment ago from John chapter 20. Peter witnessed the resurrection. He was the first apostle to see Christ alive after his death. Then all of the apostles saw him. And then Paul goes on and he talks about how that Christ appeared to over 500 people at one time. And he says that many of those people, at the time that he wrote this, many of those people are still alive. And if they didn't agree with this, if they didn't actually see Jesus arise from the dead, these are the very same people that would have stood up and held up their hands and said, no, 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 Paul, you're not right. We never saw anybody rise from the dead. We never saw Jesus after he was crucified. But in fact, they did. And they gave testimony to the fact that he did arise. Then Paul said, I saw him too. And Paul saw him at a much later time than the others. Uh, his death was, uh, was witnessed by people. And, and, and Paul went to his own death with the testimony of the resurrection still on his lips. Eyewitness testimony is always the most valuable in a court of law. One witness is good. But that's not always good enough. Two witnesses are better, two or three. And the courts still go by the maxim that by, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word is established. Well, here there are over 500 witnesses who saw Christ alive, and there is no court in all the world that would throw out the testimony of over 500 witnesses. Not unless you have an axe to grind even would you ever throw out this historical account that people saw Jesus Christ alive. So he did arise from the dead, and the fact of the resurrection is verifiable by all the witnesses. Well, as we go on in this chapter, we see next that Paul speaks of the value of the resurrection. How important is the resurrection to the Christian faith? Well, it's important enough that if I were to begin the message today, and I said, folks, I have some news for you. I've studied all the accounts. I have looked into this matter, and I've read what scientists have said and others have said, and the body of Jesus Christ has been found. They have the DNA evidence to prove that it really was this person who lived 2,000 years ago named Jesus, and they have found his body. If I started out my sermon this way, and then I said at the end of the message, you know what, we'll come back next week, and we're going to talk some more about the value of the Christian faith and living by the principles of God's Word. There's not a one of you that would come back. None of you would come back to hear me. Why would you do that? I mean, why would you go through the rigors of trying to live a Christian life and, and the persecution that goes along with it, people who hate Christianity? I mean, our country is full of people who don't like Christianity. Why would you go through that? Why would you go through the hardships of trying to live like the Bible says? Why wouldn't you just live in the pleasures of the, 
of, of the flesh. That's exactly what you would do if there was no resurrection. If I was to tell you today, Jesus is still in the tomb, you wouldn't come back here. And then what would I do at a funeral service? You know, I don't, I don't like to preach funerals, but I do have this hope, especially when I preach the funeral of, of a person who is a Christian, I can tell that family that if you believe in Jesus Christ, you're going to see that person again. You'll see them in heaven. I don't have anything to comfort a person with if there is no resurrection from the dead. So what we would do if Christ didn't arise from the tomb, we would take the offer that was made to us just a few years ago that we sell this building. Someone offered us more than a million dollars plus if we would just sell this building and they could use the property here perhaps to put a strip mall on this corner. Well, we could make a lot of money and maybe that's what we would do. I'm sure that it is what we would do if there is no resurrection from the dead. So we wouldn't be here if Jesus is still in the tomb. Why? I mean, if, if he's not in that tomb, what does it mean to us? What's the value of it? Well, it means that our faith is real. It's valuable because it means faith is real. And that's the argument that Paul makes in verses 14 through 17. And he makes that point from a negative perspective. He says, if there is no resurrection, then our preaching is vain. And that's a word that means empty-headed, of no account. And if there is no resurrection, he says, our faith is vain, also empty-headed and of no account. And he says, we are liars and we are false witnesses without this. And most importantly, though, he says in verse number 17 that without it, you are still in your sins. And that's the same as saying that God's wrathful condemnation is still upon you. The most important thing that you need in your life is to be forgiven of your sins. And if Christ is not alive, it means that God did not accept what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary. That's like saying God saying, no, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is not enough for the sins of the world. It's not enough to take anybody to heaven. It's not enough to satisfy me. But when Jesus was raised from the dead, it gave value to that. It validated the work of Jesus Christ and his ministry and what he did in this world in dying for our sins. It validated Jesus' work and death as the acceptable payment for our sins. How do we know such things as this? Well, I'll show you how important that the resurrection is for your forgiveness. Paul, Paul was speaking of Jesus when he wrote Romans 4.25, and he said, who was delivered for our offenses. In other words, Jesus hung on the cross because of our sins, and it goes on to say, but he was raised for our justification. Justification simply means to be made right with God. The resurrection means that we can be justified, made right with God. Let me quote to you what William MacDonald says. He says, Our justification is the result that is assured by Christ's resurrection. There could have been no justification if Christ had remained in the tomb. But the fact that he arose tells us that the work is finished, the price has been paid, and God is infinitely satisfied with the sin-atoning work of the Savior. So the value of the resurrection is that our faith is real. The atonement has been made. God is satisfied, and God has forgiven us of our sins. So what else does that mean for us? What is its value? What it also means that our future is secure. And again, Paul approaches this from the negative side in verses 18 and 19. If the resurrection is not real, 
then he says that those that have died in Christ, believing in him, are just flesh, and their flesh has decayed away. In other words, they perish like a dog that you would bury in your backyard. According to verse number 19, this life is all there is, and the future of every person is down the drain if Christ did not come out of the grave. Because it means that our hope is buried in a lifeless Christ who is still in that tomb. But the opposite of that is true because in verse number 20 he says, but now Christ is risen from the dead. And it says he has become the first fruits of those that died. That means that Christ's resurrection is the guarantee of ours. Since he came out of the tomb, our bodies will also arise from their graves. It says he is the first fruits of those that died. Now let me explain to you for a minute what the Bible means here when it talks about the first fruits. If you lived in the time of Jesus and the apostles, you, you would watch farmers as they would go out to sow their grain in the fields. And this was a slow process because they had to do it all by hand. You couldn't go out there and sow hundreds of acres in your field at once because you didn't have tractors and all of that. And so if you had large fields, then you, it would take a long time to sow your grain. It might take days and sometimes even a week or two weeks or more to sow all of your fields. And so what would happen? Well, it means that some of the plants would come up before the other plants. There would be an uneven harvest. So what they would do the ones who are believers in God, they would take the first fruits, the very first plants that came up out of the ground, and before they ever saw anything else grow, they would take those plants and they would give that to God. And that was their faith that said, we believe that God is going to bring in the rest of the harvest. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Christ is the first fruits. Because he came out of the grave and was the first to do so, under his own power, because he did that, it's the promise that those who believe in him will also come out of their graves. The harvest will follow. So Jesus was the first fruits. And that means that our hope in him is secure. Because he arose from the grave, we shall also. And that makes the value of the resurrection incalculable for all of the Christian faith. None of it makes sense without the resurrection. So we landed on the verification of the resurrection, the value of it. And now the next stop on what we call a whirlwind tour here in, in 1 Corinthians 15 is our vivification by the resurrection. Don't be scared of that word, vivification. Uh, that simply means our invigorating life. Now Paul anticipated the curiosity of his readers and ours as well because he knew that we were going to ask a question. And I've skipped over a lot of material to get to this part. Maybe some other Easter will take in the parts that go in between. But going back to verse number 35, a question that Paul is sure that people are going to ask, but some man will say, or someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? What is the resurrection body going to be like? And that's included in Paul's scope of the resurrection. So let's talk for a minute about what the body will be like. First of all, it's an incorruptible body. We find that in verse number 42. The, the body that goes into a grave is a corruptible body. And I think that you know that. I mean, when, you, when someone dies, you don't put their body in your living room. You, you don't keep it there because you know the body's going to decay. 
It's going to waste away. And so you don't want that, that dead body uh, in, your, in your house. When Jesus came to the tomb of Lazarus, they, they weren't too keen on the idea that Jesus was going to bring Lazarus out of the tomb because they said, he's been dead for four days. He stinks now. They weren't too crazy about opening up that tomb, but Jesus said, called to him and said for him to come forth. Now, was Lazarus' body stinking and corrupting in that grave, or did Jesus do something different for him? Well, obviously, he didn't come out of the grave with a decayed body. And you wouldn't want that to happen to you. I mean, oh, great, it's, it's nice to talk about the resurrection from the dead, but when I come out of the grave, I'm going to be a mummy. I'm, I'm going to be a zombie or something like that. Well, that, that wouldn't make you interested in the resurrection at all. So God's going to have to do something different with the body. It has to be different from what goes in. So the body that comes out of the grave, it goes incorruptible, but it comes out incorruptible. It corrupts going in, it comes out incorruptible. It's a body that never dies again. It's going to live forever. It's never going to deteriorate. It's a body raised without sin. In the 50th verse, Paul says that corruption does not inherit incorruption. And he means that you could not take your body fresh out of the grave with all of its corruption and take it into heaven because heaven is an incorruptible place. And you take a corruptible thing into an incorruptible place, what are you going to do? You'll corrupt it. So he's not going to raise the body with corruption. He raises it with incorruption. The body's not going to have any sin. And sin, that's an important factor because sin is what brings death. Sin is what got us into this mess in the first place. You were born, every one of you, with a corruptible body because of sin. Sin is a disease that infects every single cell in your body. It causes your destruction. And so your body is going to be raised without one molecule, without one atom of corruptible material then also it is an indestructible body. If you ever wanted to be Superman, here's your chance. Become a Christian because you'll be raised with an indestructible body. Nothing can harm it. Verse 53 says, For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal shall put on or must put on immortality. So you're given a new body that's never going to die, as I said. All the aches and the pains and all the problems that you have, And that's good news for some of you, for all of us, really. All the aches and pains are gone because you're raised with a new body that is indestructible. If you're living at the time that Jesus comes back, you'll be changed immediately. If you've died before Jesus comes back, then he'll raise that body with an indestructible type of body. And that's very important for you because when Christ comes back, Satan is not yet gone out of this world. In fact, Satan is still going to be here, and he's going to fight against God's people. Now, that might seem a little bit strange to you, but bodies coming out of the graves are going to enter into a warfare with Satan and his angels. God's people and God's angels are going to fight against Satan. But he's never going to be able to harm us. And finally, we will overcome Satan, and all the people in the world that are unbelievers will be destroyed. Your body will be indestructible. Nothing the devil can do could ever harm you. So that's part of this, overthrowing Satan and ruling upon this earth in a glorified body. And then thirdly, it's an incomprehensible body. That's the point of verses 35 through 49. The body that's raised from the grave is of a different type than the body that we have now. 
I've probably been asked a thousand times about this. What does that body look like? What does it feel like? What's that body made of? Well, it's not like anything we've ever seen on earth. There's no way that I could explain it to you. Nobody's ever seen one of these before. So we don't know. We've never felt it before. We don't know exactly what it is. In verse number 37, Paul compares it to a seed that's planted in the ground. Your body, when it dies, is like a seed that's planted in the ground. And when you plant seeds in the ground, the seed that goes in does not look anything like what comes up. It's much different from the seed itself. Now, you could take and you could hand me two dozen packages of seeds, and you could say, what's this plant going to look like when it grows? And unless it's corn, I have no idea. I I couldn't identify it. Now, Paul's not saying, well, if we could just find somebody who knows a lot about seeds, then uh, we'd have the answer to this of what the body's going to be going to look like. No, it's not going to be someone like Nabonita that knows a lot about seeds and growing things like that. That's not his point. The point is there are so many changes that take place when a seed is planted in the ground that that plant that comes out is nothing at all like the seed that goes in. So Paul says this body is unlike anything that you've ever seen before. Now, just know this, that if you are a believer in Christ, you are going to be given a new body that's better than anything you've ever dreamed possible. And you're going to be happy with that body. And I don't mean that Christ is going to make you over, put some makeup on you and make you look a little bit better. No, he's going to give you not a new improved you, but a completely new you. And it's not like that State Farm commercial where the guy changes his ugly girlfriend into whatever and makes her something better. This is an incomprehensible body, and it's made perfectly suited for eternal life. The human mind cannot fathom what the body's going to be like. One more observation I want to make, and I'll be through with you today. There are lots more here, uh, but I know you're, you don't want to preach till midnight. You've got the Easter bunnies you want to get to, some of you, I suppose. So, so what about this? Well, fourthly is our victory because of the resurrection. There is a victory because of it. Now, you, you've already got a taste of this as we talked about the new body and the war that comes between God's armies and Satan's armies. But Paul nails down the real importance of the resurrection for us with a rhetorical question in verse number 55. He says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Now, we've been talking about the absolute importance of the resurrection. We've been all around this question for a half hour or so. But what's the point of it all? Well, the point is that we are going to escape, escape death. I mean, here's the whole purpose of this. It's to remove from us the fear of death, the sting of death, so that we won't be afraid of dying anymore. Now, in some sense, of course, we're all afraid of death. None of us wants to check out early. I mean, if, if we weren't afraid of death, on warm, sunny days, we'd go out here in the middle of the intersection of a country club and expressway, and we'd hold our services there. But we don't do that. They've got a 12, 15 light set up out there, so you don't go through that intersection and kill yourself. I mean, we, we all want to preserve our lives in that way. But for a Christian, knowing that you're going to die is not a fearsome thing. You, there's no reason for you to fear death People fear death because they don't know what's coming afterwards. They fear death because they're afraid of what will happen to them. But not Christians, not somebody who really understands the resurrection of the dead. Now, for somebody who is not a Christian, 
still your life doesn't end with the grave. There is a consciousness to death that comes afterwards. The Bible calls that the second death. And if you are afraid of physical death, trust me, you are going to be horribly afraid. You can't even imagine how afraid that you're going to be of eternal death. Now, at one time, each of us here that is not a believer in Christ was in that condition. I hope all of us are, are different now. We're no longer that way because our faith has guaranteed victory over death. Physical death is conquered, and spiritual death is conquered as well. So what happens to a believer in Christ? Well, we are survivors over sin. Now, if you boil this down to what is it that makes us so afraid of death, verse number 56 gives the answer. There is a God, and we know that something is wrong. Something is wrong between us and God. And maybe you don't understand it fully, but you know this, that if you die with your sins unforgiven, there are terrible consequences to it. People have not been asking for centuries questions like Job asked. He said, how shall a man be just with God? He asked that question, the same question that people have asked for the entire length of human existence What is the consequence of my actions? What are the consequences of my life? There aren't any natural-born atheists. One of the reasons that atheists want to get rid of God is because they don't want to deal with consequences. If there is no resurrection, there aren't any consequences. Morality is gone, ethics are gone, expectations of some standard of living, that's all gone. And an atheist thinks that he solved all of those problems by getting rid of God. And thus, of course, getting rid of the resurrection. But the only problem is there's nobody that's a natural-born atheist. We know that there is a God. The proof is all around us. Now, if you're asked for proof, does God really exist? Well, if you need proof of things and you don't believe in God, don't go outside. Don't look up. Don't look down. Don't look around you. Stay in your house. Stay in your bed. Cover your head up, stay underneath the covers, and I promise you, you stay there long enough, eventually you're going to come to the point you're going to say, why am I even breathing? And you ask those kinds of questions because you know there is a God. It's natural to every person that's born in the world. There are no natural-born atheists. Well, the victory in the resurrection is victory over sin and the consequences of it. Christ is our justification. That's how we get right with God. And so we will survive sin. Sin is not going to kill us because the resurrection of Christ has guaranteed that the consequences of sin and the law's right to impose that consequence on us has been taken away from us. So when death comes, there is no fear. We know that we're going to survive the grave. The body's going to stay there for a little while but then that body will be raised by Jesus Christ. Now, finally, we're going to do this. We're going to circle our way back to the beginning of the chapter, and I want to show you the victory that we have in life right now. You see, you don't have to wait until you die to have victory. There is victory right now. Paul says in verse number 10, But by the grace of God I am what I am, And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. So because of the resurrection, 
we not only survive sin, but we survive it in this life with steadfastness in our faith, in our belief in Christ. Do you understand what the doctrine of the resurrection did to this man named Paul? He was riding along on the way to Damascus. You can find this in the book of Acts chapter 9. He was on his way to the city of Damascus, and there he was going to capture Christians. He was going to kill them or bring them back to prison. And as he was riding on his horse on his way to Damascus, the glory of God shone round him, and the resurrected Christ spoke to him. And right there on the spot, Paul was changed. He was a completely different man. Before, he was the strongest proponent of the Jewish legalistic system you could find anywhere. But after God changed him, he became the strongest proponent of liberalizing Christianity that you could find anywhere. In verse number 32, we find him fighting wild animals at Ephesus. He said, I labored more abundantly than they all. Now, Paul would have never risked his life at Ephesus being thrown into the arena with wild animals if there was no resurrection from the dead. If he did not firmly believe that deep down in his soul, he never would have risked his life for this thing called Christianity. See, the resurrection makes us steadfast and unmovable in our faith. And I would submit to you today that if you have a firm grip on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that it will revolutionize your life. You just won't be thinking about Easter. This permeates every part of your life. Jesus Christ is alive. He's with me every single day. And because of that, I want to get rid of what's in my life, the junk that's there. I I want to get rid of all these things that consume my time, and I want to go fully after the Savior. And I would submit to you that Christians that do not have the resurrection sunk down deep in their life as they should will only regard Easter as one day a year. It's all they ever care about is the one day a year. It's not a lifetime experience for them. But the fact of the resurrection is the main fundamental doctrine of Christianity. Everything sticks together. The resurrection is the glue that holds it together. There is no hope, there is no faith, there is no sense in any of this, there is no victory unless the resurrection is true. And if it's true, then you are accountable to God every single minute of every single day of your life. And that's true whether or not you are a Christian. If you're not a Christian, the consequences of your sins are still on you. You will experience physical death someday and then the bible says the second death as well a death in the eternal lake of fire and this is why paul began first corinthians 15 by saying moreover brethren i declare unto you the gospel by which ye are saved christ died he was buried and he arose again that is the gospel And all of it's real. If you trust him, if you believe him, you experience that by faith in the blood of Jesus Christ for your sins. You believe that he died, that he went into the grave, and that he arose again. Do you believe that? It's the most important question that you'll ever answer. If it's true, then you can have a relationship with God. And if it's true you are responsible to him. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word that we've been able to look in today. How important the resurrection is to our faith. And Lord, it is true. There are witnesses to it. It is true. We are responsible to you. And because Jesus Christ lives, we can have a relationship with the Almighty God, the Almighty Father of this universe, with Jesus Christ himself. Lord, I pray that you would speak to some soul today. Help them to realize, if they don't know you, that they must come to you in faith, believing this, because one day we are going to stand before you, and we're going to give an account of what's gone on in our lives. And the only way that we can stand justified before God is if we have our faith and trust in the precious blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross of Calvary and then in the Savior who was raised again for our justification. Speak to some heart today, Lord. We give you the praise for this day in Jesus' name. Amen.